This is Backstory with the American History Guys. I'm Peter Onuf here with my friends Ed and Brian. Hi, Peter. Hey, Peter. And I want to read a little something to you all. <clears throat> we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are... Now, as I'm sure a few of you have realized, Peter is reading from the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. And although it's the paragraph we all remember... It wouldn't have made headlines in 1776. The most important part of the document in the summer of 1776 was the last paragraph. That's the part that da 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 da, da declared independence. Today on Backstory, Independence Day. If the Declaration of Independence was adopted in June, how come we celebrate the 4th of July anyway? They took the Declaration to a local printer, and as any good printer would do, he put a date on it, July 4th. Happy birthday, America. It's the 4th of July. Today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Hey there, I'm Brian Ballow, 20th Century Guy, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. The 19th Century Guy. And Peter Ona. The 18th Century Guy. And Peter, you've promised us the most riveting hour of public radio we have ever produced here at Backstory. <laughs> okay, guys, hold on to your horses. I am going to read the entire Declaration of Independence. You know, it's a, it's a long document. Yeah. There's a lot of great... No, just joking. I wouldn't do that. That sounds like actually kind of interesting now that you mention it. Well, there is a lot of interesting stuff in the Declaration if you get past the early bits about all men are created equal. Wait a second. Yeah, That's yeah. the only part I know. Peter. Well, yeah, where are you coming from? You know, you've got to read that century, right. Man. The 20th century. you got to read it backwards. because well, You mean like Hebrew? Yeah, or Arabic. Let's be, uh, you know... Open and universal. Or like the White Album by the Beatles. <laughs> Just put it on backwards. Seriously, are you ready to be serious? I am. Okay, yes. There is great stuff in the Declaration, the body of the Declaration, about all the things that are getting Americans upset, about all the ways in which they've been betrayed, all their grievances against George. He dissolves and prorogues assemblies so that we can't govern ourselves or our provincial liberties are being destroyed. He moves capitals from here to there, shuts down courts. It's George III, supposed to be our father. That's what a sovereign is. He's supposed to protect us. How do you feel protected when you've got your dad out there sending mercenaries to Boston to kill your countrymen? Okay, okay, slow down, Peter. Mercenaries, Boston... Why don't you give some of us who live in the 21st century a little more context? Set the scene for us. Well, the theater of the war has shifted from Boston, where it all began at Lexington and Concord, and it's 15 months later. It's summer 1776. The British are in New York, and they're trying to stomp out this rebellion. Meanwhile, representatives from the different colonies, including Thomas Jefferson from Virginia, have gathered in Philadelphia. They have a Congress. They have to work something out because this war has been going on for 15 months. How are we going to win it? Now, what was it that you were going on about a minute ago? Uh, something about the Declaration, the sections of the Declaration that really mattered? Well, Brian, I could try to explain, but better yet, I figured I'd let my friend Pauline Mayer do the honors. Pauline was a historian up at MIT who published a wonderful book some years back called American Scripture, Making the Declaration of Independence. But when I sat down with her a few years back, she told me that that book came this close to never being written at all. When I was first asked to write a, quote, modern history of the Declaration of Independence, I turned it down. I said, that document is hyped out of all proportion to its real significance. I mean, obviously, the Declaration of Independence was important, but what was its important? And, you know, we all think of it as important for, you know, the first couple phrases of the second uh, paragraph. Uh, but that's part of a later life of the document. The most important part of the document in the, the summer of 1776 was the last paragraph. And people say, the last paragraph? What's that? <laughs> that's the part that da-da-da-da-da-da declared independence, right, you know? Right. 
And that was what was new, the, the statements of enlightenment principles in the second paragraph that we all remember were not at all unique to the document. It appeared other places, most notably in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which had been drafted by George Mason and was adopted in, in June. So, so uh, the important parts of the declaration at the time were all those grievances and complaints culminating in the declaration with the fanfare that you indicated. Uh, the right. first parts that we remember most are boilerplate, potted social contract I, theory. I think that's pretty much the way it looked initially. The question is how attention turned from the last paragraph to the second paragraph, and that takes about 20 years. Yeah. And I think the process of change starts in the 1790s after... Uh, we have the Constitution, and we have what we remember as the Bill of Rights. What is clear is that there is nothing in either the Constitution or the First Ten Amendments that repeats those assertions that are in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. There's no statement about equality. There's nothing about natural rights that God gave all yeah. men. Now, as the children of Englishmen, and we hadn't quite stopped being the children of Englishmen in the 1790s, people felt the need of a document to cite, to ground those beliefs. And the Declaration was made to serve that function because it was the only national document that performed that function. Pauline, one of the things I love about your book is that you ask us to think about the Declaration as a, a people's declaration. Uh, the people identified with these principles, of course, they read them in different ways and they explained them away in some cases. Is it still a people's document in the same way it was during those decades of early American history when abolitionists and women at Seneca mm. Falls in 1848? Used it, yeah. Yeah. I think it is still a people's document in that – People often justify whatever cause they're defending, however flaky, uh, in terms of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> right. I mean, I've people send me clippings all the time. And yeah. I remember there was somebody off the coast of Maine who uh, was having great trouble. He, he used to uh, dig clams on a neighboring beach, and the town decided to make their beach residence only. And he argued he had the Constitution on his side because it said he had a right to pursue happiness. And his happiness was digging clams on the neighboring yeah, happy beach. Happy as a clam. Well, right. <laughs> the problem is, of course, it's among other things, it wasn't the Constitution. It was no, the Declaration no. of Independence. Yeah. And it wasn't at all clear that it referred to digging clams. <laughs> you know? There seems to me a fundamental contradiction or tension if you think about the Declaration in its own context, it makes a kind of federal state that's recognized by other powers of the earth. That's the whole point of the Declaration is to get recognition. But as you were just saying about your clam digger, the Declaration really has a libertarian gloss now. And a document that uh, yes. made the state is an anti-statist text. <laughs> yeah, you've got yeah, – that's a point. That's a good point. Yeah, so it suggests in a way that these founding texts or documents are subject to multiple infinite interpretations. Of course, the Constitution is. And that every generation finds its own equilibrium ways to read those texts together. You know, if it wasn't true, they'd be dead. <laughs> I mean, it was. this is what, what Lincoln said yeah. uh, when Douglas, uh, Stephen Douglas, let's say the Declaration was meant to declare independence. Historically, of course, Stephen Douglas was right. Morally, Abraham Lincoln was right. Yeah. You know, he's, it is a protector of, of, of personal liberty, he said. If it wasn't that, if it just declared independence, it's, it's history in the bad sense. That is, it's buried in the past. And he had that wonderful phrase, it's like bandages, left on the battlefield after the battle is over. I mean, it's really buried in the past. You had to find new meaning in it that was relevant to your life, to his life, to the lives of people of a later time. Or it was just sort of, you know, some archival piece of uh, leftover junk from the past. You know? Well, thank you so much, Pauline, for helping us understand better the Declaration of Independence. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Peter. You. This was fun. 
Pauline Mayer was a professor of history at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the author of, among many other titles, American Scripture, Making the Declaration of Independence. After we recorded this interview, Pauline died in 2013. She'll be missed. What's so interesting is the way that history just refuses to stay still, you know, that it meant very clearly one thing at that time, and today it means almost exactly the opposite. And uh, it's almost like we should have a radio show about this that would help figure these things out. <laughs> okay, but Peter, there's something I still don't understand. How did this become a national holiday? I mean, how do we go from this yeah. piece of paper to this celebration of great nationhood? Okay, there are a lot of reasons for this. There's always a lot of reasons. Yeah. Don't yeah. Just be patient, young oh, man. Just give okay. us the reason. Yeah. Yeah. This is radio. Okay, I'll tell you. The 4th of July became a really big deal in the 1790s when, believe it or not, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and other so-called Republicans were mobilizing against the Federalist administrations of George Washington. Yeah. Guess what? The Jeffersonian Republicans styled themselves the party of the people. And this is where it all comes together. Yeah. You know, the great holiday in the first years of American The 4th of July. No, no. Yeah. Hold on to your pants. Yeah. Or shoes or pantaloons. shorts. Pantaloons. <laughs> on your pantaloons <laughs> and your breeches. Yeah. The great holiday is George Washington's birthday. Huh. And George, as you might think about it, there's a really strange coincidence here. George 30 was the king. George, George yeah, Washington, George. he was the first oh, yeah. president, father of his country. Kings are fathers. Father Washington happily had no children of his own. We're all his children, aren't we? But that's the principle of patriarchy, monarchy, and Republicans like Jefferson say, no, no, no. What's great about this country of ours is that we're all equal. We're all equal. Just Government like I consent. wrote in the Declaration of yeah, Independence. Yeah, I said that. Yeah. And, and so when the Republicans say, down with Washington, yeah. up with Jefferson, but it's not Jefferson because it, it, Jefferson was channeling the American people in right. the Declaration of and Independence. And so, Peter, what you're saying is the reason this holiday is built around this piece of paper is we were trying to replace king worship. So when I think about the symbolism of patriotism, when I think about nationalism, it's something that today is associated with the right. Yeah. Think of Barack Obama not wearing the lapel oh, flag man. pin, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that actually the origins of the 4th of July, this great patriotic mm -hmm. moment, mm -hmm. comes from the Jeffersonian yeah. Republicans. And, yeah. and in today's terms— these were the men of the people. Mm -hmm. These were people that we would say are on the left. Is that Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, it's an oppositional impulse. It's a self-consciously democratic impulse with a small d that is on behalf of the people against elites. The left had the flag. It had the symbols of nationalism and back in the, Jefferson's yeah, time. And, uh -huh. the, and the big mistake the left of the 20th century made started burning the flag, right? That's right. Those are the things that people still remember and still infuriates them. Huh, and I, you know, I could, I could see a show. Can you... Uh, well, yeah. since we already filled up part of one just by yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Well, let's no, celebrate. There's, there's a, How about a parade? We have to take a quick break, grab a hot dog, parade around the room, get yourself in the mood, because when we come back, we're going to hear what you, the listeners, have to say about our nation's birthday. Visit us online. We have a lot of special treats waiting for you there. You can listen to a longer version of Peter's interview with Pauline Mayer and hear him recite the Declaration of Independence from memory. <laughs> You'll find it all at BackstoryRadio.org. We'll be back in a minute. This is Backstory. I'm Peter Onuf. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Bellow. So, Peter, before the break, you were talking about how Jefferson and his fellow Republicans basically invented the 4th of July in the 1790s. You were saying it was an alternative to the kind of king worship that took place on Washington's birthday. Can you, can you go a little farther? Well, I mean, what, what happens down the road? What happens after Jefferson you, dies? You know what I think is interesting yeah. no, is no that telling. the 4th of July becomes an opportunity for a peace-loving people to be militaristic. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I thought it was just like fireworks and hot dogs and mattress sales. Fireworks, fireworks, fireworks. What does that suggest to you? Explosions? Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, where like, are most people likely to encounter explosions? Fourth of July. <laughs> 
Battles? It's, it's, uh, it's, we just forget this. It's in battles. Exactly wow. right. It's the experience that a lot of Americans had. One of the things that the 4th of July has always done is provide an opportunity for veterans to put on the old tattered uniform and to be the center of attention for a day. And for the rest of us, it provides an opportunity to blow things up. <laughs> Fireworks have been a part of the 4th of July since the very beginning, and it's safe to say that in general, the rule has been the bigger the better. That was especially true out west, where there was all kinds of space and you could make as big an explosion as you wanted. At least that's what James Heinze says. He's the author of the 4th of July Encyclopedia. Peter and I caught up with him just in time for the big day. There began in 1876 um, explosions and rockets launched on tops of mountains. On purpose. On purpose, they were planned, and in 1901, they had the largest explosion in the history of the 4th of July celebration up to that date occurring on top of uh, Pikes Peak when they built a giant fire up there and let loose at least 18 large barrels of oil and gasoline mm -hmm. into the fire, which uh, caused um, sparks and flame to go up hundreds of feet in the air. And So you could see that for miles around. Exactly. Yeah. They, they could see it from Denver. Out west, the fireworks of choice, if they didn't actually have fireworks, was, was dynamite. And we would just like to pause here and tell any young people who may be listening to the show, we are not <laughs> recommending exploding dynamite to celebrate our nation's birth. So tell us about the parade. Did somebody figure out, some brilliant genius figure out, if you just got all the drunks to move in one direction and called it a parade and gave them some flags, that it would uh, maintain some order? No, actually, the first parades were actually very well organized. The military, the militia, as well as the citizens would typically meet at a designated location, and they would march to the place where the ceremony was going to be held. Right. Um, the first largest parade in the history of the country occurred in Philadelphia in 1788. That parade was more than a mile long, and the idea there was to get the people organized so they would ratify the Constitution. Now, you were talking about this being celebrated out west. How about down south after uh, the Civil War was over, or even before the Civil War? Has the Fourth of July been a Southern tradition? It, had, it was extremely uh, a Southern tradition. In fact, Charleston, South Carolina, had some of the most interesting Fourth of July celebrations. The, the Civil War all but put an end to the Fourth of July celebration in the South for many years to follow. Right. So when did that change? That began to change at the centennial um, Richmond, for example, that was the capital of the Confederacy. In 1876, that was the first time they flew the American flag over the courthouse there. Yet the, the South was not totally healed until the Spanish-American War, when the boys of the South and the North fought once again together on a battlefield. That's interesting. It took the South almost 40 years to begin celebrating that holiday again. Wow. Exactly. So once again, the, the theme of uh, the military and patriotism being sort of the, uh, the engine that drives the 4th of July. Jim, it's been wonderful talking with you, and uh, happy 4th of July to you. And thank you very much, and happy 4th to you. James Heinze is the author of the 4th of July Encyclopedia, and he knows just about everything there is to know about the 4th. Here are a few other authorities on the holiday, but these folks are a little closer to the action. My name's Ray Cadell. I'm a real estate broker here in town. I've been involved in the uh, 4th of July fireworks here for eh, 15 years or so. We're in Charlottesville, so of course it's all about the Revolutionary War and Thomas Jefferson, and uh, there's a lot of history in this town, but it all points to that moment when it gets dark and stuff starts blowing up. I'm Susan Christian. I'm director of the Mayor's Office of Special Events here in Houston, Texas, and I also co-produce our annual celebration for July 4th. It's called Chevy's Freedom Over Texas with fireworks presented by Shell. And we have tanks and aircraft and all of the branches of the military are represented. We top off the evening with the uh, nation's largest land-based fireworks show. When we celebrate, we do that in a really big way here in Houston. I'm Steve. I work for the Corner Store Garden Center. And uh, we sell fireworks during the 4th of July. And week of 4th would be the busy week. That's when everybody wants to do it the last minute. I reckon the children would be the ones go liking. I mean, it's 
almost like Christmas to them. I reckon they just like to see the bright colors. We're going to go to the phones now because we want to know what some of you think about the 4th of July. Peter, who's leading off today? Well, we got a call from out there in dynamite country. It's Kelly in Missoula, Montana. Kelly. Hi. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I'm working on a book about Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, the 4th of July figures importantly in her books, mostly in a later book, Little Town on the Prairie, that mm-hmm. takes place in DeSmit, South Dakota. And it seemed like the focus was more on, like, they read the Declaration of Independence, yeah, yeah. saying, my country, tis of thee. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of all about farmers being free and independent. And I was kind of wondering if it meant if maybe the 4th of July meant something different to farmers in the West. Well, tell us, first of all, were, what it meant for Laura Ingalls Wilder. What was it like in South Dakota? Uh, well, they had just gotten out there, and it was basically a brand-new town. And they had just kind of, you know, erected you know, kind of the false town mm-hmm. fronts, and they had a dusty main street. <laughs> and this was the first celebration that they'd had. This was the, kind of the first gathering as mm-hmm. a town. So they'd kind of put something together, and it consisted of drinking a cup of lemonade and watching pony races. Ah, the good old days. Oh, lemonade. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, that's and a couple the, of fireworks. Oh, no, no. It's the lemonade that rings untrue here. Uh, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> tell us about the 4th of July in the yeah. early part This is of in the 1870s? Yes. Ooh, good guess. I think the nature of celebrations did change significantly over the previous 50 or 75 years or 100 years. And that business about drinking and lemonade might have sounded silly, but there was much more alcohol consumption earlier on. By the 1870s, you've got a lot of teetotalers, a lot of opposition to strong drink. The temperance movement is very powerful. Especially among women. Yeah. Especially in the West. Right. What you're seeing there is in some ways a 4th of July suitable for young women. Uh, sure. <laughs> right. But right. I'm, I'm guessing behind some of those false storefronts, they were celebrating the country in another way. Uh, you'd also get this notion of a of a civic celebration that you're describing, in right. which everybody's doing the right thing. It's not boisterous. It's not partisan. People are not beating up on each other. And earlier Fourth of July celebrations tended to be very contentious. Oh, really? Yeah. The idea of the Declaration and of Jefferson as as its author was a partisan thing in the 1790s and early 1800s. That is, it was Jefferson against the Federalists, that is, the administration. And then later in the party system that emerged in the 1830s and 40s, there were a lot of counter-demonstrations of Democrats and Whigs uh, having alternative celebrations, trying to win over popular favor and so forth. I guess in the 1870s was the time that people were looking in the wake of this horrific civil war and this just, you know, debilitating reconstruction and horrible depression, any symbol of national unity and pride was surely welcome. Yeah. And that one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys is we know that by the end of the 19th century, the nation is knit together more through railroads and the telegraph. And there's, there is more of a, a, a kind of sense of mm-hmm. nation. So to what extent in the early 19th century was the 4th of July the only time that people thought about the entire country? How often did people out in the West or in small towns in the South, Ed, let's say in the 1830s, 1840s, how often did they even think well, about I, I the think, nation? I think maybe more than you, you might think, Brian. I think the symbols of nationhood spread eagle, the flag, and then patriotic holidays like the 4th or Washington's birthday, that they would be important. Even if there's no real nation there, I think that's your point. Nobody's directing this thing. Nobody has a central directorate for propaganda. Kelly, can you help us out on this question? I mean, you've described a scene that's very local. I understand they're celebrating the 4th of July. To what extent do you see any indication that kind of they're even aware of being part of a larger nation except through some of these symbols? Well, it's kind of interesting because with Laura Ingalls Wilder, she wrote the books, but her daughter, uh, Rose Mm -hmm. Wilder Lane, kind of heavily edited and helped out. She was actually a more famous author in her day than Laura Ingalls Wilder. Interesting. And she was a staunch kind of um, freewheeling libertarian. She got really radical in her later days. She lived in Danbury, Connecticut, but she would farm all her own vegetables. She didn't have to spend any money in the economy and pay taxes, and she actually 
declined work, earning a certain amount of money so she didn't have to pay taxes. And I, it's been said in this particular oh, wow. passage where Laura suddenly steps aside and kind of has these internal musings where she talks about being free and independent. Americans are free and they don't, mm-hmm. you know, obey kings. And that it's been kind of, that was where Rose Wilder Lane kind of slipped in her libertarian. Interesting. So independence bit. was important to yeah. her. That it was her own independence. And that happened throughout American history, that Americans confused their independence with the nation's independence. It's interesting that she had to move back east to become free, kind of violation of the American story. (laughs) We want to thank you for calling, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. thank you. Peter, who's next on the phones? We got Greg from Charleston, West Virginia on the line. Greg, welcome. Hello there. How are y'all? Welcome to Backstory. Give us a question. My question would be what happened to the actual revolutionary spirit in America? And was there a real American revolution? I love that question. You know what John Adams said? He said uh, that would be the second president of the United States. He said one-third of all Americans during the revolution were patriots, one-third were loyalists, and the other third were fence-sitters, or as Tom Paine called them, sunshine patriots. Now, (laughs) historians quarrel with those, uh, those fractions. I'm inclined to think that the fence-sitters were even larger in number. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, depending on which way the wind was blowing, otherwise known as the British Army, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> people were inclined to take oaths of allegiance to whichever power was on the ground. So, Peter, what, what happened to those fence-sitters as the revolution went on? You know, you guys could tell us about other wars, but everybody has a good war in retrospect. They got good stories to tell. They're not going to talk about how they ran home as soon as they can. Desertion, of course, was at very high rates. But, you know, there really was a a kind of a forgiveness policy. Anybody who could make believe that he or she was a good patriot, you're cool. And actually, people who were loyalists were welcomed back into the fold. And was celebrating Independence Day one of the ways they proved their uh, their loyalty, their citizenship? Since they didn't put their bodies on the line during the war itself, they put their bodies on the line walking down the street. So what you're saying is that they sort of invented revolutionary spirit after the fact. Absolutely right, Ed. There was spirit, okay? But the myth was that everybody had it. Got it. And lots of people had it for a few months early in the war. It's a lot of fun thinking about killing people. Ah, That sounds terrible. But, you know, it's sustaining it over the long haul that's the tough thing. Greg, I feel we've stifled your spirit. What does does revolutionary spirit mean to you? The the thing that surprises me is the fact that one group of capitalist overlords simply replaced another, you know, and a lot of people don't want to look at it that way. They don't want to feel that that is the answer to an American revolution. But in many ways, the British oligarchy was simply shunted aside and a a new oligarchy was established. Well, I I, I don't uh, think, Greg, you know, the only thing wrong with that proposition is, in fact, it was the old provincial ruling elite who maintained power afterwards. So it's not really a new displacing an old. So why was there a revolution then, Peter? That's a great question, Ed. And the the answer simply is that you had a bunch of provincial elites, yeah, and they wanted to remake the empire in their own image. So there's so that's a lot what, to what that, Greg was that's saying. That's what Greg was saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, the all men are created equal. That's in the Declaration of Independence. What patriot leaders meant was that all Englishmen are created equal, particularly elite Englishmen, (laughs) and they didn't like the second-class treatment they were getting. So, Peter, how did they get at least a third of the people to support that Well, the word that you 20th century historians have for this is propaganda. (laughs) No, it's actually false consciousness. Uh, False consciousness, you name it. But that's too big a word to use on the show. No, I think that's a silly and dismissive way to put it. Take it back, Brian. Yeah, I do take it back. Well, I'm going to take back uh, what I said, too. (laughs) Can we take back this whole phone call? Greg, you want to withdraw anything? (laughs) No, I I would say this. It's one of the hallmarks of the modern world that large numbers of people who don't know each other can imagine themselves as being members of a common community. Ah, and Peter, does the 4th of July reinforce that? Is that maybe what the 4th oh, of think July is all about? civic rituals are very important to remind us that whether we like it or love it, and whether we quarrel with the founders or we celebrate their achievement, they're all we got. 
Well, they're an interesting group of people that developed an idea that was new enough to create, you know, an entire economic paradigm in the United States. No question about it, Greg. That, that, that was not there originally. Now, yeah. that paradigm is what I consider not a revolutionary paradigm, you know. It was a new and, in many ways, very sort of uh, modern concept. You steal land from Indians and you pay off your veterans. It was a great it was a great process yeah. and it went on for 40 years, you yeah. know. Well, you, Greg, welcome to American politics. And I got to <laughs> say, uh I don't think there is such a thing as a real revolutionary spirit. There never has been a real revolution or the ones that are real are ones that lead to massive destruction of life and property. One of the great things about the American Revolution is that so few people were slaughtered compared it to the French Revolution. But this is supposed to be a happy discussion about hey, our that's national pretty happy. Yeah, come hey, on. Yeah. So we got America cheap Whoa. is what yeah. you're saying, right? Yeah, it didn't cost that much. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then we bought other big parts of it. And it's a it. big country, and we love it. So, uh, Greg, thank you for being so provocative. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. All, All right. right. Thank you, Good Greg. talking to you. Bye-bye. I appreciate talking to you. Sandy, the fireworks are hailing over little Eden tonight. Forcing a light into all those stony faces left stranded on this warm July. Down in town, the circuits for a switch played lovers so fast, so shiny, and so sharp. As the wizards play down on pinball way on the boardwalk way past us. And the boys from the casino dance with the shirts open Like Latin lovers on the shore Chasing all them silly New York virgins by the score It's time to take another break. When we get back, we'll hear more of your thoughts about the 4th of July. We're also going to travel back in time to the 1850s and listen to one of the most eloquent speeches about independence since... Well, independence. So give us a call and tell us what the 4th of July means to you. Our number is 888-257-8851. If you prefer email, the address is backstory at virginia.edu. We'll be right back. Don't even think about going away. This is Ed Ayers. We're working hard on a slate of new episodes this summer. We have one about the history of happiness, one on American satire, and another on fire. Head over to BackstoryRadio.org to let us know your questions and stories. Also, for a special treat in our History of Happiness show, we'd love for you to share, in one sentence if you would, how you pursue happiness. Leave us a voicemail at 434-260-1053. Don't forget your name and where you're calling from. You can also share on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is at Backstory Radio. This is Backstory. I'm Peter Ronoff. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Ballow. Today we're bringing you a special Independence Day episode of our show. Peter, do we have another caller? We sure do, Brian. Now, I know this is supposed to be all about the U.S. of A., but there's a foreigner in our midst. Her name is Pam, and she's calling us from Saskatoon, Canada. Hello. Well, actually, I live in Saskatoon. I'm a history professor at the University of Saskatchewan. Wow. But I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So you're one of us. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm one of you. <laughs> I'm an American oh, citizen, okay. and I'm a Canadian dis- citizen. So I've got, I, I have a dual personality. So uh, Fourth of July... Do you celebrate the Fourth of July until noon? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, and then uh, and then we celebrate uh, Canada Day, which is on well, it's on July first. Well, how do they celebrate the first? Yeah. 
Well, it's the same way, actually. No, um, fireworks? I, I, and, I, fireworks? And, I, and I don't want to say they're copying because that's a really bad... Oh, that would be the no, wrong no, no. thing to say. And plus, Canada. it's three days earlier, so they can't be copying. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it, it's in honor of, of Canada Day, and uh, when Canada became a confederation in 1867, a bit after when uh, we became a country, and... You know, Who, who's the we? I'm sorry. Pardon me? We? Oh, us. The, the U.S. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> So uh, they celebrate it with fireworks as well. And I'm not sure if they play the 1812 Overture. Um, they eat hot dogs? They eat hot dogs. Hey, and no, no, Pam, burgers. this is really... So I have a question, guys. When did the 1812 Overture become the tradition for the 4th of July? Yeah, I, I was interested in that, too, because I teach Russian history. And uh, I thought, isn't that interesting? Yeah, we're going to ask yeah, you. Well, I, yeah, well, I think you've totally stumped the American <laughs> history guys. So maybe the Canadian history gal can tell us. No, I, I really don't know. And, and I tried to look into it a little bit online, and I couldn't find that out. I mean, I know that it's often connected with the Boston Pops as the first orchestra that started to play regularly, but I don't know why they Oh, should. I know about my parents used to play in the National Symphony Orchestra, and they'd do this on the barge, and they'd have real cannons, and... Brian, Very how many exciting. times are you going to play this? My parents were in the National Symphony Orchestra <laughs> thing. I'm so tired. We are hoping that some of our listeners will contact our website, backstoryradio.org, and answer this question for all four of us historians. Well, Pam, I hope you enjoyed your July 4th. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks Thank so you much. Pam. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, music aficionados, this is your big chance to show us up. Drop in at BackstoryRadio.org and tell us when the 1812 Overture became the soundtrack to the 4th of July. The 76th correct answer will win you a very special limited edition recording. Brian Ballow sings the greatest hits of the National Symphony Orchestra. (laughs) Peter, you got another call for us? I sure do, Brian. It's Tim from Hicksville, New York. Welcome to Backstory, Tim. Thank you. Tim, the 4th of July, what does it mean to you? Oh, it's uh, it's uh, a bit of a conflict for me, actually. Mm. I'm a, I'm a pastor in Hicksville, uh-huh. and uh, I have a mainline denominational church there, and uh, I I struggle every Fourth of July because there's some people who really want to celebrate it as a kind of a Christian holiday and yeah, turn over yeah. the Sunday morning worship service to it, and it's uh, something makes me awful uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah. So this is a problem for you because you feel like it excludes so many people, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's also a theological problem for mm-hmm. me because we have a couple of songs in our hymnal, like America the Beautiful, which are really praising America, not praising God. Right. But that actually goes back in a big way to the 19th century, I think, to the time of the Second Great Awakening, when the rise of the Methodists and Baptists and the evangelicals throughout the country, and that is the idea that good Americans were Christians, became pretty normal. I mean, the unusual generation is the founding generation, because those folks were not particularly religious in our sense of the word. But Peter, I am confused, because we think about the 20th century as secularizing many holidays that in fact are Christian holidays or religious holidays. Yeah, that's a good point. This is odd that it would become more Christian as time goes on. That's a great point, Brian, because uh, the early celebration of Fourth of July was really associated with celebrating Thomas Jefferson's role in channeling the American people in the the Declaration. And that's the great sacred scripture of the day, and that's not Christian. So what kind of pressures do you face as a minister uh, to incorporate this into the church service? Well, some of it is nostalgia, you know, the way we the way we always used to do it. Yeah. And how is that way? What what stories do people tell? What do, what do they tell you they used to do? Oh well, it, I hear stories about uh, Sunday school mostly when people who are maybe raised in the Depression and uh, World War II era uh, remember uh, celebrating Flag Day and Fourth of July and uh, all sorts of other holidays that. Uh, just encouraged their sense of group uh, awareness and gave them a sense that they were pretty safe and mm-hmm. life was going to be okay in spite of the trouble that they were in. But there's not a religious element in that. But, you know, especially in the rural areas, it was uh, kind of like, you know, you went to the one building in town that could hold a lot of people to do some of your civil religion. And that was the church. Yeah, and that was often the church. Yeah, that's a great point. But it is possible to talk about a broad and inclusive patriotism 
that uh, is not pro-war or anti-war. And... Well, uh, sure, and, and we, have, uh, we have a couple of songs that uh, sing things like uh, My country's skies are bluer than the ocean, but other lands have beautiful places too. Yeah. Unfortunately, those are not as popular as the real, you know. <laughs> well, there's your mission, isn't it, Tim? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've never actually invited a sermon before, but do you have a particular Independence Day sermon? No, because I always do sermon from uh, no. from Scripture, and there's honesty, nothing in Scripture actually, about America, makes and very little radio, about too. patriotism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, here here's a, a radical suggestion. Wouldn't the very notion of love, which is central to the Christian gospel, be a, a way to deal with this? Sure. Okay, let's work out this sermon, <laughs> shall we? All right. <laughs> I'll expect it uh, in the mail by you. All right. <laughs> okay, Tim. It's been great talking with you, and uh, I know we haven't solved crisis at all, but it's, uh, I think, a moment, the 4th of July, for people to be thoughtful about what it means to be an American, and that's something you can certainly ask them to do from the pulpit. Well, certainly we can. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Well, if you guys really are looking for a 4th of July sermon, I think I've got something here that fits the bill. It's not strictly speaking a sermon, but rather a speech given on the occasion of the 4th by Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist and former slave, back in 1852. He delivered it up in Rochester, New York, where he lived at the time. 1852, so that's almost a decade before the beginning of the Civil War. Well, yeah, but tensions were already running high all over the country. The Fugitive Slave Act had just passed, which decreed that Northerners had to help return runaway slaves and could be drafted by local constables to be part of posses. Uncle Tom's Cabin was written as a result of that. So all over the country... People were really thinking about slavery, abolitionism, and the tensions in the United States. So, so Ed, are you just going to talk about the speech all day, or can we actually hear a little of it? I thought you'd never ask, Peter. We're going to do a little time travel now, and we have a special guide for the trip. David Blight, a historian up at Yale, who's written a whole book on the Douglas speech. And David is going to take us straight to the source, Rochester's Corinthian Hall, July 5th, 1852. Friends of freedom... On this magnificent morning, the women of the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society welcome you here to commemorate the glorious Declaration of 1776. Douglas gave this speech on the 5th of July, which had actually become a tradition in the state of New York, in particular in the African-American community, a kind of subtle protest uh, against the 4th of July at the same time black communities had been embracing it for Ladies years. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Frederick Douglass. The hall held nearly 600 people. It was full. Uh, it was a speech that Douglass himself said he worked as hard on as any speech he ever crafted, and it, and it uh, certainly shows. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, the distance between this platform and the slave plantation from which I escaped is considerable, and the difficulties to be overcome in getting from the latter to the former are by no means slight. The structure is brilliant. It's, it's in many ways an oratorical symphony in three movements. The first movement, in a, in a way, is the first, oh, several pages of the speech where he welcomes the audience, he honors the Founding Fathers, he calls the Fourth of July the American Passover. He, uh, he, he directly quotes from the Declaration of Independence. He calls the Declaration of Independence the ring bolt and the sheet anchor of American liberty. He honors the founding. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too. Great enough to give frame to a great age. And it's as though he's putting his audience pleasantly at ease with uh, the the celebration of American independence. And then, about a third of the way into the speech, the hammer comes down. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom becomes yours, not mine, and he begins to rain the pronoun you, 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 down onto his audience. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. 
This 4th of July is yours, not mine. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems wherein human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, fellow citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? It's as though he has suddenly strapped his audience in their seats and won't let them move, and he rains down this litany of, of American hypocrisy about slavery. I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Therefore, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. That spring of 52, early summer, Uncle Tom's Cabin was published uh, to enormous readership. At the time Douglas gives this speech in Rochester, it's possible that half that audience already had a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So this is an audience conditioned to some extent for this kind of critique of American hypocrisy. But I would also suggest that that audience, Douglas's own neighbors and friends, came to that speech that day not quite probably expecting how that hail was going to rain down on them. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all of the days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. But uh, it's his point that you've invited black people here to sing for you, but we're not going to sing for you. We're going to make you hurt. Your shouts of liberty and equality hollow mockery. Your prayers, hymns, sermons, and thanksgivings are to him Mere bombast, fraud, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Imagine being on the other end of that and thinking you were on his side when you walked in. <laughs> but then, about two-thirds of the way through the speech, this portion comes to an end with a horrible image. It's right out of, uh, out of, out of Jonathan Edwards and the, the Puritan sermons of the 18th century. Be warned! A horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you! the hideous monster, and let the weight of 20 millions crush and destroy it forever. And after that image, there's a transition. Probably he paused, and this hailstorm of humiliation stops. Notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of this nation, I do not despair of this country. It's as though he picks them up and kind of wipes their brows off. And he says the principles of the Declaration, the principles of the Declaration of Independence are still there. They're like precious ore. Uh, they're forever. They're natural rights. Drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence and the great principles it contains. And he says it's still not too late. America is young. It's youthful. It's malleable. It is still possible to save the country from itself. And then he ends with a, a poem that actually, I think, became a hymn uh, that was written by William Lloyd Garrison called God Speed the Year of Jubilee. The Year of Jubilee, the wide world o'er. God speed the day when human blood shall cease to flow. God speed the hour, the glorious hour, when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power. So he ends on this note of of, you know, the hopeful coming day of emancipation somehow, someday. But what, what, what that audience had experienced over probably an hour and a half is Douglas as an ironist at his best. Uh, Douglas, the, the kind of Jeremiadic prophet at his best. 
Uh, it's a speech that I think, frankly, is the rhetorical masterpiece of American abolitionism. And no one, frankly, used, appropriated the principles of the Declaration of Independence quite so forcefully as did abolitionists, particularly black abolitionists. Uh, the natural rights tradition, liberty, equality, the right of revolution, without those principles. And I think this is... This is implicitly what Douglas is actually arguing in the 4th of July speech. Without those principles at the founding, where would blacks have ever looked for a future in America? They'd have had no future in America. That was David Blight, and what I'd have to say is a pretty remarkable construction by our producers. David directs the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University, and he's the author of Frederick Douglass's Civil War, Keeping Faith in Jubilee. The speech was read by Fred Morsell. You can listen to it all on our website, backstoryradio.org. You know, I got, I got to say, guys, David talking about the way this speech was, was used to kind of give new meaning to the Declaration of Independence just blew me away. It's very, very powerful. What's interesting is uh, Frederick Douglass was not the last African-American to ring those themes. Matter of fact, from the very first moments in which the Union Army went into the South in the Civil War, and they met African-Americans, uh, even people without the education and exposure to the world that Frederick Douglass had enjoyed, knew how to speak that American vernacular. They would often turn to the words of the Declaration of Independence and the Founding Fathers for their claim on what it meant to be Americans. And some of the most beautiful documents I've ever read are uh, the petitions from the freed people of the South to the Union parties and to the Republican parties and to the United States Army saying, all we ask is for our share of our patrimony to be full Americans. That's all the time we have for this episode of Backstory, but we hope you'll continue the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and our website, backstoryradio.org. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Jess Engerpretsen, and Eric Mennell. Backstory's executive producer is Andrew Windham. Major support for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by Weinstein Properties, by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.